Amen. In 1974, there were few men in America who were as hated as Chuck Colson. He was a lawyer who was a special counsel to President Richard Nixon, and he was renowned as someone who was, one journalist called him, the evil genius of an evil administration. And within this administration, just as evidence, Colson had organized violent riots against anti-war protesters. He defamed critics of the administration. He proposed illegal activities and was heavily involved in the cover-up after the Watergate break-ins. But what was most shocking was that when he confessed, when he pleaded guilty, he did so on the grounds that he had become a Christian. He wasn't doing it to escape punishment. He was doing it because he knew it, he knew himself to be a sinner in the sight of God. He even confessed to crimes that he hadn't yet been charged with. During the investigation, you see, he had been given a copy of Mere Christianity by an old friend and had experienced conviction of sin and knew that the blood of Jesus Christ was for him, not to save him from the earthly consequences of his but to give him eternal life, to save him from the wrath of God rather than just a political scandal. Of course, the media could not believe this. I mean, Chuck Colson? How could this man be a religious convert? Surely this was a sympathy plea from the judge. Had to be cynical. Could someone like this really be redeemed? And yet, after his release, what did Chuck Colson do? He went back to prison, not as a prisoner, but to share the gospel with his fellow inmates. A redeemed sinner pointing other sinners to Christ. That's what a redeemed life looks like. If Christ could cha change Chuck Colson, who couldn't he change? This is the scandal of the gospel, and it is the scandal of the gospel which we find in our text this morning. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn so long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from a garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Our text opens by introducing us to Matthew. Matthew, who is sitting at a tax booth because he is a tax collector. Now, to understand the reaction of the Pharisees and to understand the context, we have to understand what a tax collector was. Today, we tend to think of someone like an IRS agent working for the federal government, but under the Roman system of government, a tax collector was actually an independent contractor. This is a system called tax farming, and these individual contractors would make a bid to the Roman government for how much they thought they could collect from the local population. And anything over and above what they had bid, they got to keep as compensation. And so in Judea and Galilee, these figures were despised. After all, they were lining their pockets at the expense of the people. And in a place like Judea, where there is also this resentment against Roman occupation and Roman paganism, you know, the pagan rule over God's people, there was more than an element that these people, these Jewish tax collectors, had sold their countrymen out, that they were traitors, dealing in the despised coinage of the Roman emperors, which contained the blasphemous image of Caesar himself. And yet this is who Jesus calls to himself. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. If you remember from last week, Jesus had just healed a paralytic, and he'd done so to demonstrate his authority to forgive sins. And here we have a great sinner, a great sinner whose sins are now forgiven. It's not just a person who is paralyzed now, it is someone who is despised. And this is not an easy thing for Matthew to follow. He's going to have to give up a lot. Back in chapter 8, we heard Jesus' warning about the cost of following. And for Matthew, this cost is clear. Following Jesus means giving up his lucrative franchise giving up that contract with the Roman government. It means going from wealth to poverty. Maybe it means giving back money that he's wrongfully taken. Asking for forgiveness from people he has wronged. But all that it says is he simply got up from his booth and he followed. Not only that, but then he invites Jesus for supper. 
and he invites over all of his tax collector friends. Next thing we read, Jesus is reclining at table with tax collectors and sinners. And by accepting this invitation, Jesus once again draws the ire of the local Pharisees. Now, we were introduced to these people in the last passage, and it seems that they've been keeping an eye on Jesus because here is a man who is teaching and says that he can forgive sins. And so they're watching him, and they are scandalized by what they see. This teacher coming from outside their guild seems to be saying some good things, and yet look at what he's doing. He's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. He's associating with them. And so what do they do? They don't go straight to Jesus. They go to his disciples. They go to his disciples. And they ask them a question, a question that might cast out. Is this really the crowd that your master is associating with? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus overhears this skeptical questioning, and he responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, this is, you know, slightly foreign to us. We have a culture where, you know, we go to the doctor every year for an annual checkup. But in Jesus' day, the physician was someone that you called when you were actually sick. When you actually had a known ailment. And so what Jesus is saying is the reason why he's here with these people is because they know their problem. They know their sin. They know their sin and they are looking to repent. There's a common misreading of this passage that we need to address here. You know, the, you, know you will hear this phrase, Jesus ate with sinners. Here we see him doing that, eating with sinners. But what sort of sinners is he eating with? He's eating with repentant sinners. Of course this is scandalous to the religious leaders. These people, you know, just a few days ago were living in notorious sin, and now you're eating with them? But Jesus' point is, these people are repentant. These people are not people who think that, you know, Jesus is there to excuse their sin. These are people who are looking for redemption. They know that they're sinful. Jesus did eat with sinners, and the Pharisees were scandalized. But there is that Repentance. The repentance is the key part. Jesus is not soft-peddling sin here. What he's doing is he is forgiving sinners, drawing sinners to himself. 
And that can't have been comfortable. I mean, here are Jesus' disciples sitting at the same table with tax collectors. That's got to be awkward for everybody involved. But that's who the gospel is for. Jesus' disciples are also repentant sinners. And when sinners repent, it doesn't just scandalize the self-righteous, it also makes brothers out of enemies. That's what we see here, is enemies who are now sitting together at the table in the presence of God. After his conversion, Chuck Colson started attending a Bible study on Capitol Hill in Washington, and it turned out that the leader of this Bible study was a leading critic of the Nixon administration. Some, someone that just months earlier he would have never even spoken to, and now is sitting under his instruction. One of the reasons why people often don't want to repent is because repentance is messy. It means talking to people that we're uncomfortable with. It isn't clean and it's not easy. And that often scandalizes those who think they have it all together. It means admitting sin in the presence of people who we think are looking down on us. It means that we're in fellowship with people, some of whom we don't like. And sometimes that perception of judgment is correct, as in the case of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are looking at this scene, and all they can see is a bunch of people who just want cheap grace. Cheap forgiveness. But here's where Jesus' words are pointed and surgical and precise. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. If we think we've got it spiritually figured out, we need to think again. The Pharisees trusted in the ceremonies and the rules of the Old Testament law, but they forgot that these are meant to orient the people of God to the fundamental truth of their need for salvation. This is the main point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a list of rules. It's a changed heart. The law goes beyond simply the external conformity down to the heart to point us to our need for God's mercy. And therefore, it calls us to show mercy to fellow sinners. The Pharisees think that the fact that they don't act like Matthew and his tax collector friends means that, you know, they're okay. They're right with God. They're following the law. And so they keep themselves ceremonially clean so that they may go and sacrifice. But the point of the law is that none of us are clean. God desires mercy because God is a merciful God. God is a God who has shown us mercy. Now there's a second group who gets the repentance part. These are John's disciples. You know, John the Baptist preaches this message of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the repentance part they don't have a problem with. But they're also bewildered by something else. 
because it looks like Jesus is not sufficiently rigorous in the disciplines that he's imposing on his disciples. And so they ask him a genuine question. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, in the Jewish calendar, there's actually only one designated fast day. That would be the Day of Atonement. But later rabbinic tradition, as practiced by the Pharisees, recommended fasting at least twice a week. And it was a practice that distinguished the Pharisees and John's disciples and the Essenes and other groups that took the law seriously. It distinguished them from the general population. And so John's disciples are asking a genuine question. If repentance is what you're preaching, Jesus, why aren't you requiring your disciples to fast? And Jesus answers with three analogies, two of which go together. So the first analogy is that of a wedding feast. Now we know the scene. You know, the ceremony has happened. We're at the reception. The bride and the groom have entered, and it's no time for sorrow and sackcloth and ashes and fasting. It's time for feasting. It's time for dancing. How can the guests not fast? How can the guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? When the bridegroom is absent, then they will fast. The wedding reception is no time for fasting. That's Jesus' short answer. But then there's his longer answer. There are two different analogies. First, we have no one sews a new patch onto an old garment. Now, any of you who are familiar with sewing may be aware of this. You know, if you sew a new patch of cloth onto an old and worn out garment, what's going to happen? Well, the first time you wash it, that new patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear away at the cloth. It's going to make the hole bigger. But then the second analogy, which is parallel, involves new wine and old wineskins. In Jesus' time, wine would be fermented in large vats and then would be put into skin bags for transportation and storage. And as time went on, the new wine would continue to develop and ferment, creating gases that would cause the wineskin to expand. And so if you put new wine into an old skin, one that's already stretched out, what's going to happen, that expansion is going to make the wineskin burst. Both of these word pictures are easy to grasp, but what do they mean? Some people have thought that the new wine or the new cloth is the new covenant of free grace which is incompatible with the old wineskins and the old garments of the Mosaic law. And so this is about, you know, the old versus the new covenant. You know, the Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples are this, you know, old wineskin that needs to be discarded 
for the new gospel of free grace. Or sometimes, you know, this has been taken as an analogy for, you know, renewal within the church. Sometimes a renewal movement within the church is new wine and old wineskins. And so, you know, we have to start new denominations and new congregations and plant churches in places where, you know, the old churches are just dead. But that, both of those interpretations, as valid as they might be, ignore the immediate context of what Jesus is saying to John's disciples. John Calvin and Matthew Henry, great Bible commentators, both suggest that these interpretations actually have it backwards. It's not that the wine of the gospel is too strong for the old traditions, but that the disciples are actually the weak and the tattered garments. You know, there's that, there's that hymn, Come ye sinners, come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. They're the ones who are fragile. To ask them to bear these heavy burdens this early in their spiritual life would be to discourage them. And this reading is actually suggested by Luke's version of this story in chapter 5 of his gospel, where Jesus concludes this statement with this, No one, after drinking the old wine, desires new. For he says the old is good. The wine here represents spiritual growth. But for that old wine to develop, that new wine to develop into old wine, the wineskin has to be strengthened. It ha the wineskin has to be renewed. The disciples are not yet ready for harsh spiritual discipline. You know, Jesus says, when the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. There will be fasting in the Christian life. But they're not ready for it yet. They, these people are young in the faith, and they're already giving up much to follow Jesus. Matthew Henry puts it like this, young beginners in religion must not be put upon the hardest duties first, lest they be discouraged. These tax collectors and sinners that Jesus is eating with are new believers. They know their sin and they are turning from it. And so to give them a set of prescribed fasts would be to give them more than they can handle right now. More than they can handle this stage of spiritual growth. They're already sacrificing. They need mercy. Isaiah 42 verse 3 talking about the suffering servant says a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus is not laying heavy burdens on his disciples because he has compassion. Compassion for sinners bruised and broken by the fall. Sinners who know their need and are repentant. You see, the Pharisees and John's disciples have a lot of head knowledge. You know, they've been following for a while. But where did they start? 
They're tempted to think that because of their disciplines and traditions, that they're spiritually better than these recent converts. But where is the compassion for sinners? Where is the mercy? Where is the willingness to bear with and assist those who are in the middle of messy repentance? John's disciples have knowledge. Do they have mercy? Unless any of us think we're off the hook here, remember that it's just as easy to look down on people who we think are legalistic. I have Christian brothers and sisters who have strong convictions on matters that I'm not so sure are so important. But Christ gave his life for them too. Where is my willingness to bear with the weaknesses of my weaker brothers and lay down my own freedom for the sake of walking with them? Paul in 1 Corinthians addresses issues of Christian freedom, in this case, eating meat sacrificed to idols. Here's what he has to say to Christians who flaunt their convictions, flaunt their freedom, I should say, against the convictions of others. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. If food makes my brother stumble, may I never eat meat. Knowledge puffs up, says Paul, but love builds up. Whether the issue is imposing harsh disciplines with customs that the young believer can't bear or exercising Christian freedoms that offend brothers with tender consciences, the question is the same. Do we have mercy for weaker brothers the way that Jesus did? Do we recognize that we have received mercy and therefore we should extend it? The problem that the Pharisees have in this passage is not that they have a false doctrine of sin. The problem is that they have no patience for sinners. Their doctrine on paper might be perfectly good. They might even in theory recognize that they are two or sinners. But where's the practice? Even for those of us who agree in our heads, it's so easy to forget our own sin and the great mercy that has been shown to us. The problem for John's disciples is not that they're legalists. It's not that they're wrong about the importance of spiritual discipline. It is very important. The problem is they think they're more advanced and know more. And so they have little patience and little mercy for people who are just starting out. Because the reality is, we are all those who are sick and need a physician. None of us are righteous, as the psalmist says. We need the great physician because we're all sinners. We all need mercy. We all need redemption. We extend mercy and grace because we too have received mercy and grace. We have been redeemed. 
God desires mercy, not sacrifice. If we are at all advanced in our sanctification, then that is a gift. That is God's grace in our life, and it is meant that we would go and come alongside our fellow sinners. It's not a cause for pride. It's not a cause for self-righteousness. During his time in prison, Chuck Colson started a Bible study where he discipled and was discipled by fellow inmates. And you know, when you're in prison, if you're really honest, then you know that you are a sinner just like everybody else. That's what Chuck Colson discovered, but despite his Ivy League education, despite his high status, despite everything, he was no better than any of the others. And because of this, humbled by this realization, by this confession of sin, and the good news of grace and mercy in the gospel, he returned to the prison. He returned because if God could save Chuck Colson, he could save anyone. That's what the changed life looks like. Matthew invited tax collectors and sinners to meet Jesus because when we follow Jesus, when we understand that we have been redeemed by Jesus, we want others to meet him too. We want others to hear his call and repent and embrace the gospel. If we truly have a heart for the lost, we're going to be clear about the demands of the gospel, the true demands. And we are also going to be living a life of continual repentance and reliance on the mercy and the grace of God. To repent and believe the gospel, you can't just indulge in your sin and say that you're a Christian. It's a life of turning away from sin. Put away your pride and your selfishness and your self-righteousness and your greed and all of it and look to Christ. And so our presentation of the gospel needs to be clear. The sinners who ate with Jesus knew that they were sinners. There's no illusions there. But the gospel is for sinners. The repentant heart puts away self-righteousness because we realize that we have no righteousness of our own. If we're advancing in holiness at all, it is through God's grace. It should produce in us humility and patience and charity. That is our challenge today. Are we willing to put away judgmentalism and self-righteousness and embrace a gospel for sinners like us? Are we willing to bear with our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ and use our knowledge not to tear them down but to build them up? Will we stand on the sidelines or and ignore our Lord's words that he came to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance? Will we stand by our sacrifices or will we remember that we too have received mercy and so extend that mercy to others 
Will we follow the way of Christ, which is the way of mercy and not sacrifice? Let's pray. Lord, we are great sinners and you are a great savior. You have redeemed us, you have bought us with your blood. We pray that you would give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart that's, that is motivated by your gospel, that you came to save not the righteous but sinners. We pray that you would help us to bear with one another because we have received mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.